Hello, you're listening to The History of Now, a podcast run from the History Faculty of the University of Cambridge, or more precisely, from a locked down living room just north of the River Cam. This podcast is about how thinking about the past can help us to think about the present. And right now we're running a series on issues related to the crisis triggered by the current COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Clark, and my conversation partner today is Gabriela Ramos, Senior Lecturer in Latin American History at the University of Cambridge. Gabriela has written widely across the fields of the social and cultural history of Latin America, particularly the Andean region, but most relevant for today's discussion are two studies. Her prize-winning book, Death and Conversion in the Andes, Lima and Cusco, 1532-1670, which appeared in 2010, and an extraordinary volume edited with Yana Yanakakis entitled Indigenous Intellectuals, Knowledge, Power, and Colonial Culture in Mexico and the Andes, which appeared in 2014. Gabriela, does the struggle of governments to tackle the current crisis in Peru, where you are now, in Latin America, or anywhere, bring to your mind historical parallels? Is there an historical dimension to this crisis? Uh, well, yeah, definitely there's a, there's a historical dimension to this. Uh, well, teaching uh, the history of colonial Latin America in, uh, in Cambridge, um, I, I always start by the fact that in many ways our history starts with uh, the first um, the first process of globalization uh, back in the late 15th century, early 16th century, um, with the arrival of the first Europeans uh, in the so-called New World. Um, with them, a uh, number of uh, diseases uh, from the Old World came to a region that had not been exposed to these uh, diseases in the past because the continent had been completely isolated from the rest of the world. So in, in many ways, uh, um, our history as uh, Latin America uh, starts with uh, epidemics. Um, fascinating. So, what, what epidemics are we talking about? What diseases are they? Well, uh, we don't know of all the diseases that, uh, I mean, in detail, that uh, were, um, were striking uh, the indigenous populations in the late 15th uh, century and early 16th century. Uh, some of them were more recognizable than others. Definitely smallpox, for example, was uh, one of them. Uh, it does appear in a few uh, images that uh, have uh, uh, that were produced at the time and, and that we are uh, able to, to see today. Yeah. Uh, for other diseases, we do have some reports, uh, as in the case of uh, the flu, uh, or apparently uh, what seems to have been measles, um, mumps. Uh, but at the time, it was very difficult to, um, to recognize uh, certain diseases. It is also possible that diseases not, did not uh, came in, uh, say, in, um, by themselves, uh, I mean, as, um, one by one, but they came in clusters. So that also is something that makes it difficult to uh, know uh, exactly what was uh, happening at the time. 
This is a very uh, we do know because mm. in several of these podcasts we've talked about the fact that you know these diseases don't turn up on their own; they turn up in batches of diseases which work together um, because yes. they're spread at the same time. For example, by by warfare and of course the conquest of of Latin America uh, by the Spaniards begins <laughs> by definition with warfare. Yes. So. Um... Some diseases that are related to, well, the fact that people are, uh, that people get together, no, and they stay together for rather long periods of time, like typhus, for example. Yeah. Uh, that is also something that uh, we can infer from the sources that uh, typhus, for example, was uh, striking at uh, different moments from the early contacts between uh, Europeans and indigenous uh, Americans. Let's, let's call them like that, although, of course, the, this uh, name is uh, more an uh, anachronism than anything. So, mm. <clears throat> so, and what kinds of, yeah. you know, what kinds of impacts are we talking about? How can we quantify the impact? If we think of a a country like um, well, what we now call Mexico, um, later New Spain. Um, what what are the numerical impacts of disease on these on these populations? It is uh, it is difficult to come up with numbers. Uh, historians, uh, population historians, back in the 1940s, for example, were making calculations uh, about the possible a population uh, of central Mexico. Uh, um, they tried to estimate the, the losses uh, in the years after the arrival of the Spaniards. Uh, so uh, the numbers are really striking. Uh, we are not uh, speaking about uh, uh, hundreds or thousands, but uh, actually millions. Mm. Uh, Central Mexico was uh, definitely the most populated uh, area of the whole continent. Mm. Uh, the city of Tenochtitlan, uh, which is today the city of Mexico, was definitely the largest uh, city in uh, the Americas. Um, they had huge uh, population losses as a result of uh, the contact with uh, Europeans. In fact, it is said that the conquest of uh, the city of Tenochtitlan was possible because uh, at a certain point uh, the city was struck by uh, uh, epidemic of smallpox. And so uh, it was almost impossible for the local population to um, to deal with that and at the same time uh, respond to the uh, to the Spanish invasion. Uh, in addition to the fact that uh, there were many people that uh, were unable to uh, to move around, uh, the fact that uh, there wasn't enough uh, people to continue, for instance, working in the fields, mm. uh, then the local population was also struck by by hunger. So that crisis is something that made possible that uh, a city that was so densely populated, uh, an empire that counted on so many soldiers, 
uh, was finally um, um, taken by the by the uh, Spanish uh, armies that were supported by other indigenous uh, uh, armies as well. Uh, but something that seemed initially impossible happened because precisely uh, disease was a sort of unexpected ally that the, that the invaders uh, encountered. No? Now, I, I, was looking at some, I was looking at some numbers, as you say, they're, they're just estimates, of course. We don't have, you know, very secure demographic data for this period. But it suggested that between the early 16th century, when the conquest begins, or when it, when it's when it takes place in that that first sort of wave of um, of violence, um, and the later sixteenth uh, century, the sort of fifteen eighties um, nineties, something like as many as ninety percent of the population succumb to these epidemics. Does that seem plausible to you? Well, um, it is it is plausible. The, the scholars that, uh, that came up with these uh, figures uh, made these estimates of um, the population crisis in central Mexico. They used uh, the uh, figures that were collected by colonial administrators at the time in order to uh, collect uh, tax from the indigenous population. And so mm -hmm. they have to make some inspections uh, if you want some kind of field work in order to um, uh, get the numbers of uh, people that used to uh, pay tribute under the Aztecs. Uh, so they collected uh, stories about how certain towns, for example, uh, had in the past, uh, let's say, 5,000 people, but now uh, there was hardly there were hardly two families uh, alive. Uh, many men had died uh, as a result of their participation in, in war. Many people also had died of hunger. Uh, many had been displaced. And so uh, using this information, these uh, historians uh, came up with uh, uh, these uh, these uh, numbers. No? Um, so it may seem, uh, you know, going from, let's say, 25 million in 1519 uh, down to 1 million in 1605, see, it's really shocking. Uh, but at the same time, I think the, 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 the stories uh, that were uh, collected of the uh, impact of the conquest at the time are quite... Um, Possible. Uh, yes, that's interesting. Now, if we wheel southwards, you, th this is Mexico, um, the sort of northern part of the of this zone of Spanish conquest. And if we move southwards to the Andean region, which is your area of specialization, um, uh, the, the the homeland or the, the landscape in which the Inca civilization was was rooted, um, it, do we see a similar picture of of massive mortalities? Yes. Um, now, there's a, an important difference with uh, Central Mexico, uh, which is that uh, there were in Central Mexico, there were high concentrations of, of people because there were a number of cities, city yeah. states. 
mm. in Mexico. The layout of the population in the Andes was different. There existed cities, but they were not as numerous and they were not as densely populated as those in, uh, in the case of uh, Mesoamerica. However, the, um, the losses were also uh, many. Um, these uh, estimates uh, that were uh, produced by also population historians uh, back in the in the 20th century are based again on um, the um, records of uh, tribute paying. Uh, the Inca Empire had a more, uh, as compared to the Aztecs, had a more centralized structure. So uh, it was uh, possible to have an idea of how many people uh, lived in these areas uh, before the arrival of the, of the Spaniards. And uh, comparing that with the uh, head tax that was uh, uh, collected um, at the time of, uh, let's say, in the mid uh, 16th century, there is uh, the, there are huge uh, differences in terms of the number of people that uh, used to to live in in some of these areas. They were more dispersed, but anyway, it was possible to have an idea of how many people lived in a certain uh, in a certain region. Um, also, there are accounts of uh, how. Uh, uh, life was like or what kind of resources existed, how many people lived in certain regions as, for instance, on the, on the, on the coast. Uh, and these accounts are uh, telling of um, the many losses uh, that um, occurred. Uh, there are accounts of towns that were abandoned, uh, people also that were apparently for reasons that are related to the ecology, to the weather, uh, many people that died as a consequence of epidemics, mm. uh, because it seems that certain diseases thrived in, in a certain type of environment. And so on the coast where the weather was warmer, it seems that it was possible for certain diseases to, uh, to thrive. And so that took many people uh, well, that, that made many people fall sick and, and die. Well, here's a question from, from ignorance, but I, I noticed too, and I, I took a brief look at some of the, the, these estimated figures on mortality in the Andean region, and they seem to suggest that mortalities were partic particularly high, as you suggest, on the, in the coastal areas. And I wondered whether the geography of that region isn't also a factor, the, the fact that communities are separated by, you know, gigantic, um, you know, well, it's a, a highly mountainous region, which is why we call it the Andean region. Um, is that a factor, do you think? <clears throat> As I said, well, on the coast, because the weather is warmer, this is mm -hmm. at sea level, um, the weather is warmer, it seems that certain diseases were able to, to thrive in, this, uh, in these areas. Now, at the time of the arrival of the Spaniards, the highlands were densely populated. Uh, it seems that there's something about the, the weather in the highlands that protect people 
or protected mm. people from some of these diseases. And this is a, there is an interesting parallel nowadays with the coronavirus. Uh, this is quite interesting. The highest uh, mortality nowadays is uh, experienced on the coastal areas and in really? the Amazon region, whereas the highlands uh, do not have as uh, many uh, people that are either uh, acquiring the disease or dying from it. And this is a question that is in the air nowadays. Why is it that uh, there are so many deaths? In addition well, to the social and political causes that are also explaining why you have so many people inf uh, either infected or dying, uh, there's something about the environment, it seems. Fascinating. That, uh, fascinating. In Cusco, in, Cusco uh, in the area around Lake Titicaca, the number of people that are infected is very, very low as compared to those in the, on the coast or uh, the Amazon. Fascinating. Yeah, I want to come back. I want to come back to come back to these questions later, and we will. Yeah. Um, that's, that's extremely interesting. Um, but I'm just thinking now. Okay, so we're talking about if, if I don't know if it's at a, 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 a comparable level in the in the Andean region, what we now call Peru, but um, you know these mortalities are even in the, in the horrible sort of history of of human the human encounter with epidemics. These are very remarkable mortalities. Um, they're worse in the case of central Mexico than, for example, the Black Death in, in, in medieval Europe between 1347 and 1352. Um, and that's one of the worst visitations that we're aware of. So these are abs profoundly traumatic visitations of disease. What do we know? Do, do, what do we know about how the, first of all, the, the colonizers, the, con, the, con, the, the conquerors, as it were, as they used to be called, the Spaniards, how did they see this? Were they aware of this? mass dying off among the people they had they were now um they now treated as, as subjects they of course they noticed that uh, there were massive uh, deaths um but at the time the understanding of uh, disease was uh, very very poor uh, and there is something key, uh, there's a key concept here that did not exist at the time, that of immunity. Mm. Uh, so they could not um, understand why was it that the indigenous people were uh, dying uh, you know, massively, whereas uh, they didn't, didn't suffer of this. So, of course, uh, given that they didn't have understanding of concepts such as uh, immunity, uh, their understanding also of contagion was quite uh, poor as well. They used, uh, well, ideological or religious explanations for that. Uh, they thought that, well, then God was uh, helping them, that what they were doing was right. Um, on the other on the other side, uh, there were also well sort of fatalistic explanations for what was happening. Um, so uh, this has had some consequences. The idea of European superiority probably probably has a, has roots uh, on situations like this. Um, and, so. and and do we know much about how the indigenous themselves saw this? extraordinary sort of era of destruction? Did they have a conceptual framework into which they 
they put it or did it, did it break through all the existing sort of horizons of experience and um well, <clears throat> well this is a difficult uh, this is a difficult problem to to explain because uh, some there are some sources that were produced rather uh, well late uh, you know several decades after the conquest uh, that uh, say that uh, indigenous uh, Mexicans or indigenous Andeans uh, said that they, in fact, there had been some prophecies that this was going to happen anyway, that the uh, splendor of their uh, states uh, was going to uh, fade. Um, so, you know, this was somehow um, uh, written already. Um, that this was some kind of sort of puni punishment, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But th this is hard to this is hard to prove. Uh, yes, definitely, I, mean, I yeah. Well, there's, there's this there's this concept which I'm in a very amateurish uh, way aware of Patakuti. This this uh, among the Inca, the uh, the idea of a kind of era of catastrophe. Um, mm. Was that invoked in this kind of connection, or do we simply not know? There are debates on this because, as I said, the sources that speak of uh, this catastrophe that was coming anyway, uh, they, these were things that were written uh, several decades after the conquest. And they were mm. not necessarily written by indigenous authors. Yeah. Uh, and on the two sides of Mexico and Peru, uh, these versions coincide which suggest that they were produced by, for example, missionaries, uh, by Spanish people themselves that were sort of writing the history of what had happened and were trying also to come up with explanations. Can you give us an example? Uh, <clears throat> well, the in the six in the 17th uh, century we see these uh, explanations coming up uh, in the writings of uh, Creole authors. Mm. Uh, also, the famous Creole meaning uh, these these are white Spanish, in other words, um, elites in. <clears throat> In America, American elites. Yes. Uh, so Creole is some, someone that was of uh, Spanish descent, but born mm. in uh, in the New World. Um, so they were trying to make sense of what had happened. Um, I think the idea of the world turned upside down or something that comes to an end in many ways has something like a Christian... A Christian route. Yes, um, but, but there's there are very famous um, engravings, aren't there, of Indians, uh, or of, in this case Mexicans, suffering from smallpox in particular. At least it looks very like smallpox. Um, from a book, and, and they have imprinted our visual memory of, of what that, those epidemics were like. Um, where do they come from? Well, they come from uh, <clears throat> the work that was led by a uh, Franciscan uh, friar, uh, Bernardino de Sahagún, uh, 
is one, he was among the first uh, Franciscans that uh, arrived in Mexico uh, shortly after the uh, Spanish conquest. Um, he uh, founded um, uh, a school for um, elite uh, indigenous uh, men in what is today uh, the city of Mexico. And among those um, uh, indigenous uh, men that were uh, working with him were people who had already the skills of uh, the ancient um, uh, Aztec uh, scribes. Um, using these uh, sort of representational techniques that uh, that came from the Aztec uh, pre-Columbian uh, empire, uh, they uh, wrote a history of uh, the Aztecs uh, that told how life was like before the uh, arrival of the Spanish and also uh, at the time of the at the time of the conquest. So some of these uh, drawings uh, do present, uh, for instance, the uh, epidemic that struck uh, central Mexico at the time of the conquest. And perhaps the more um, striking of these drawings is representing precisely the epidemic of smallpox uh, in 1519. Um, at the time when the Spanish were already uh, in, in Mexico and were sort of getting ready for the final attack over the city of Tenochtitlan. And what do these what do these images show us precisely? Well, they show people that are all covered in these uh, boils. Well, we know that uh, smallpox is uh, it's a terrible uh, disease, yeah. uh, so they are lying on mats and. Uh, at least in one case, they are being assisted by a, uh, I think it's a, a woman uh, healer, yeah. um, and they are suffering horribly. Uh, in fact, well, there is a, a description of uh, uh, what they were going through. That, mm. uh, what does the description say? What does it say? Um, well, this is, of course, a translation. Uh, the disease brought great desolation. A great many die of it. Uh, they could not longer walk about, but lay in their dwellings and sleeping places, no longer able to move or stir. They were unable to change position, to stretch out on their sides or face down, or raise their heads. And when they made a motion, they called out loudly. The pustules that cover people cause great desolation. Very many people died of them, and many just starved to death. Starvation reigned, and no one took care of others any longer. On some people, the pustules appeared only far apart, and they did not suffer greatly, nor did many of them die of it. But many people's faces were spoiled by it. Their faces were made rough. Some lost an eye or were, or were blinded. Well, that's pretty... That's pretty tough stuff, isn't it? Um, I mean, it, it's interesting, the, the reference to people no longer looking after each other, because one of the great themes in the current coronavirus crisis has been that, you know, by and large, people have looked after each other and, you know, communities have risen to the tasks that face them and 
um, you know, handing out cards, you know, inviting people to get in touch if they're in need of med med medical supplies or shopping or other errands and uh, tasks. And um, so in a sense, there has been a, a certain, you know, social mobilization. But of course, we're talking about a mortality in this case that is tiny, microscopic compared to these, you know, these these almost genocidal waves of of um, mortality that accompany the arrival of these diseases in La in in Southern America or Central and South America. So um, so of course, you know, our, our our social mechanisms have not been tested in the way that that the theirs were. Um, do we know? And so we have that. Is there anything else we know about how the indigenous saw this? Does is there a later um, recollection of this great dying off in indigenous historical awareness? Uh, do we see anything like that? Is it is it thought of as a genocide? Is it politicized in any way in indigenous memory? Well, nowadays, uh, things perhaps uh, 20 years ago, indigenous movements have uh, become quite um, uh, important uh, in different parts of Latin America. And um, the history of the, this is why the history of the conquest is being told and retold uh, over and over again, uh, because, well, it is, uh, it is common that people try to find the roots of their problems. No? Why is it that we are poor? Why is it that we are discriminated? Uh, and so uh, they come back to the history of the conquest and say that that is the very beginning of uh, the problems that we are facing today, and so the episodes like this, like the epidemics, these massive deaths, are very often presented as uh, genocide. Uh, this is um, an idea I can understand where it comes from, uh, the use of the term, but I do not agree with that because I, genocide is something that is done according to a plan, it's done on purpose. Mm. Um, for all the havoc that was created with the conquest, uh, we, cannot, uh, we cannot say that the Spanish had planned this from the very beginning. This was not a biological war. Uh, they didn't understand themselves what was uh, happening, why so many indigenous people were dying. Um, but, uh, well, I think it's the term genocide is something that is appealing to some, is useful uh, for political reasons, and it has stayed uh, with us. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's a, there's a debate about this term. Well, it's, there are many debates about the term genocide now, about its use in different contexts. Um, of course, the Armenian one is, is one of the most um, sort of famously controversial. But in, in the context of the settlement of Australia by white settlers, there's also been a discussion about whether the, the great dying off of, uh, of indigenous peoples in Australia should be viewed as a genocide. Um, in particular, there's the case of the, the island of Tasmania, um, mm. where, it, where there were sort of, you know, there was kind of low-level, um, franchised-out, you know, colonial violence, killing, and so on, by by settlers and by various others, whalers and and other people who happened to be in the area, uh, who sort of killed without, um, you know, indiscriminately killed um, indigenous people. 
Um, but there also does appear to have been epidemic disease um, in parts of Australia, which, which played a role in this. And then the question arises whether you can still use the term genocide if you don't have a, a clear, any evidence of a governmental intention to produce this outcome, which you don't in Australia by and large. So, um, but, you know, I have colleagues who have, have said that you can rescue the term genocide by thinking, Dirk Moses is an example at the University of Sydney, thinking of genocide as a structural thing, structural genocide as something mm. the consequence of settlement, but not the outcome of an intended, an intention or a plan. Um, so I suppose one could say in that sense, you, you could say the term remains applicable um, to an event like this, even if it's not intended by the, by the um, conquerors. Yeah, but it was not intended also because the pattern of colonization was different. You know, you have spoken about examples in the in the 19th or even 20th century yeah. when uh, settlers needed to clear out the land. You know, they needed to get rid of the people, you know, as it happened in the United States, as it happened yeah. in Argentina. But in the 16th century and, uh, and beyond that, the Spanish needed the indigenous people because they oh, were yeah. not looking for land to cultivate. They were, this was not the kind of colonization that you see in the 13 colonies in North America. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, uh, um, a symbol of, uh, of, of being rich both in pre-Columbian uh, Spanish America and in colonial uh, Spanish America, was to have command over a number of people. Yes. That was how wealth was measured. Yes. It was not, I have all this land. I have all these people working for me. So the Spanish were also interested in the fact that, that indigenous people would not die because they were not according also to their ideas of prestige of what it's like to be noble and rich, et cetera, et cetera, was not to work with your hands. So you needed to have someone that would do the hard work for you. Yeah, so yeah, very that is how power and wealth were measured. I have all these many people working for me. I have all these many people under my control. So, uh, you know, this, the idea, this is why the idea of, of genocide doesn't work. I can understand the political uses of the term genocide, but uh, for different reasons, some of which I have just mentioned, it does not apply to colonial Spanish America. I know that many people won't like to, <laughs> I mean, won't agree to, with what I'm saying, but I, I think it's, um, uh, it's the reason why you cannot use the term. Well, the term has become so intertwined with political emotions now, hasn't it? Yes, um, tied up with, with the the power of a particular kind of memory to legitimate particular kinds of politics. Um, I, I want to we, we're coming to the end of our time now, but I wanted just to ask you, um, if I may, about about the the contemporary situation. You're in Peru right now, uh, in yes. Lima, is that right? And yes. uh, I mean, doesn't matter where anybody is right now. We're all having the same day-to-day -day existence under lockdown. I presume you are under lockdown. Is that right, more or less? Yes. Yes, um, uh, have hardly. I I just left uh, this week uh, for the very first time in two months. Uh, I went to the grocery store. <laughs> Congratulations! <laughs> that must have been a thrilling moment for you. It was an exciting experience. <laughs> now, um, 
one of the things that's very interesting, we've been talking a lot in these podcasts about how different the responses of states are to mm-hmm. um, an epidemic. I mean, we, we did the coronavirus is the corona, the, well, SARS-CoV-2 or, or COVID-19, whatever we want to call it, is the same thing. It's the same molecule or a set of bunch of molecules. Um, wherever it goes, wherever it, it's found, it's, it's the same thing. And yet this single pathogen elicits very different responses from different political cultures. And this mm-hmm. would be the case e- e- even in Latin America, where we might think, okay, these, these countries have a shared history to a certain extent have a shared um, history. But um, one thing we do see is on the one hand, the emergence of, of senior um, political leaders who have, you know, um, you know, arrogated to themselves a, cent- a, a, a more central and more prominent, more salient leadership role um, in the face of this epidemic crisis. I'm thinking of someone like Alberto Fernandez, Fernandez in Argentina, who, has, who announced publicly um, a couple of weeks ago, I assure you that I will take personal responsibility for guaranteeing the government's proposals. Um, in Chile, um, um, Sebastián uh, Piñera, has, has his, his popularity has surged. I mean, surged is perhaps too strong a word. It's gone from uh, a 10% approval rating, which is pretty low, to about 18%, which is, um, you know, whatever one thinks of that uh, amount, it's an 80% improvement on, uh, on the earlier uh, situation. Uh, he's declared a state of catastrophe. And he's um, put the presidential palace, La Moneda, at the heart of the decision-making process in handling uh, this crisis. And we've seen similar things happen in Colombia with Ivan uh, Duque. Uh, the great sort of contrast is, um, well, two great contrasts. One is Brazil, where um, mm-hmm. Bolsonaro has, has, has ended up in the kind of fight with his regional governors that we've also seen in the United States. Uh, he called uh, Joao Doria the the governor of Sao Paulo, a, a lunatic for decreeing a 15-day quarantine in Brazil's most populous and wealthy state. Um, and um, he refused to attend the video conference of Latin American presidents that took place in March to find a global consensus to address the crisis. He didn't even turn up. He sent his minister of health uh, instead. So, and then there's Mexico, which has taken, you know, one of the more relaxed um, approaches. Uh, Lopez Obrador has, has held, continued to hold large-scale public meetings after these had been shut down in most other parts of the world. Um, and he was famous, uh, he's famous for urging the public to keep hugging each other. Um, he said, some people say that we should stop hugging each other because of the coronavirus, but we have to hug each other. There's nothing wrong with it. And that's that. Um, so, you know, great, a great diversity of responses, uh, at least from the presidents of um, the different Latin American countries. Um, where does Peru stand in this in this continuum, and what kinds of measures have you seen? Well, Peru was, uh, I understand, it was the first uh, country in Latin America that uh, issued uh, a lockdown. Uh, this was almost at the same time as Argentina. Um, the the government uh, acted very promptly. Uh, at the beginning, it seemed to be quite uh, sort of the right thing to to do. And it appeared also that they were going to do it uh, efficiently. But uh, after several weeks, uh, we see that uh, the epidemic has uh, grown. Uh, considerably. Uh, nowadays, uh, Peru is uh, the second uh, country with the number of uh, 
infected uh, people uh, after Brazil only. Now, that's, that's data that uh, needs to be analyzed, and there are a number of reasons uh, why uh, this country is in that uh, position. Uh, yeah. We have to take into account that Peru is uh, among the countries that is uh, that has the largest number of people being tested. So, of course, the more tests you make, the, the largest number of infected uh, people Absolutely. you can detect. Uh, but anyway, you know, they, it would take a, a, <laughs> a long time to explain why uh, the situation are related to policies that were applied uh, since uh, the early 1990s. We have a health, uh, a, a system of public health uh, that is extremely poor, almost abandoned for decades. And this is the result of the market policies that were applied uh, from the early 1990s. Um, so if the government reacted in that way, uh, is was because they were trying to make time so that the health system doesn't collapse, collapse earlier. Uh, now, there are systems like that in Argentina, for example, they have been able to sort of present a situation in which they are uh, in control, but uh, one has to say also that Argentina is not uh, is not making as many tests as other countries in Latin America. But on the other hand, they also have a more robust uh, system of public health. It's uh, something that they have inherited from the time of uh, well the 1950s, where you where they had a very strong uh, state that was concerned about spreading uh, good services of public health, good uh, public uh, education, and that is why so you where public education is strong, then the people is able to understand the message. And this is another thing that explains the tragedy of Peru nowadays. Uh, we also have a very poor uh, system of public education, and so this is why people cannot uh, understand sometimes very simple messages. Uh, if you have a whole system where that you know of public services, like just having running water, uh, which is the case of Peru, uh, people can. I mean, you can tell them a thousand times a day that they have to wash their hands. But if they don't have running water in their houses, yeah. you know, even if yeah. they got the message, they cannot do it. And so, you know, many, many, many reasons why also the, the results and the policies that are applied in different parts of Latin America are bringing uh, sometimes uh, dissimilar results or uh, similar results in, uh, in the presence of uh, similar policies that were uh, were applied. That's very interesting and of course a reminder if we needed any of how different these states are. I mean they're, they're they're given that they have this sort of you know common in some respects common point of origin they're they're they have such a diverse I mean history has played such different games with these political cultures ever since that they've they've evolved in such different directions. But um, 
Has there been any tendency to politicize the handling of the of the crisis um, in in Peru? Criticism of the government, for example, um, or is is it is the general pattern one of compliance um, and acceptance of and trust in the government's advice? The the president of Peru, uh, as I said earlier, he acted very promptly. I think mm. he managed the crisis uh, very well. But you cannot, it's very difficult to deal with a situation that has been, I mean, that is the result of decades of abandonment yeah. of public services. Mm. It's not only the, the fact that the public health is in a terrible state, uh, it's also a problem of public education, it's also a problem of uh, the other services that were abandoned simply because uh, the economic policy that has been applied in this country for decades uh, has uh, privileged the interests of other people, but not the larger part of the population. So even though uh, President uh, Vizcarra uh, did what was uh, necessary at the right time, mm. uh, the circumstances, you know, the, the, the weight of, of history is very difficult to, to, to go against it. They have bought time and they have managed to, uh, to save, I'm pretty sure they have managed, the government has managed to save many, many lives. Uh, there are reports, as in other parts of the world, that, uh, for instance, uh, deaths probably are many more than the ones that are actually reported. Mm. Uh, at the, as we speak, I think the count is something around 3,500 deaths in Peru. This, of course, is uh, very, a very small number as compared to those in larger countries mm. or in other countries. Uh, but they have uh, the, the Peruvian government has has uh, with the policies applied. They have saved time, uh, trying not, not to have too many people in hospital at the time. Mm. Uh, trying also to you know, it's it's amazing that uh, in just a question of two months they have managed to have more. Uh, units of intensive care, many more than this country has historically, historically have uh, in, in decades. Uh, well, this, but, is interesting. this is very interesting because you, you said, you, you mentioned, I think this is absolutely right, that, that you know, the states and political actors of every kind um, are mired in, in the sort of thick, you know, sludge of history. But, and yet, on the other hand, crises do provide governments with a certain freedom of movement, or that's to say with arguments for increasing their freedom to maneuver. Um, do you think, and I want to close here, but do you think that that Peru will be a different place after this epidemic? Do you think it's going to change something in the world we live in? That's an extremely difficult question. Um, I think two weeks ago I did have the... Uh, the expectation that things uh, would change. Uh, you ask me today, I have doubts about it. 
Oh. Um, yeah, I I have doubts about it. The same as I I doubt that they are going to change in Brazil. Uh, the same as I doubt that they are going to change in Mexico, for example. Mm. Uh, the problem also is that uh, countries like this, like Brazil, Peru, um, Mexico, are you know the problem. The question of social inequality mm. is such that you, I mean, you have to act on on so many levels and be so radical. I think that I I think that is very very difficult. Uh, that will happen. I hope. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, today I feel quite um, hopeless about the possibility that that very needed uh, social change uh, will take place because mm -hmm. the weight of decades of abandonment, of inequality, and another factor also that we haven't talked about, corruption, is such that uh, I think this pandemic is, uh, we still haven't seen all the effects of it. Well, history, as Marx put it, continues to press like a nightmare on the brains of the living. Um, Gabriela Ramos, thank you so much for joining us for this fascinating conversation about um, epidemic disease in the history of Latin America and, uh, and, and, and the crisis that Latin America and the rest of the world face today. Um, we struggle to master coronavirus or, or COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. Thank you so much, Gabriel. Thank you, Chris.